0: Welcome to the Real Clear Defense podcast, Hot Wash. Today, in light of what appears to be a full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia, the largest conventional conflict in Europe since World War II, we've asked Ben Connable to return to update us on his views of this rapidly evolving situation and to discuss his recent commentary on Real Clear Defense. Will the Ukrainians fight? Dr. Ben Connable is a retired Marine Corps intelligence officer, a senior non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council, and adjunct professor of security studies at Georgetown University. And now, Real Clear Defense editor David Craig and Dr. Ben Connable.
1: Good afternoon, Ben. We uh, talked a little this morning about the invasion and... We even emailed back and forth precipitously about your article we post this morning regarding the Ukrainian will to fight. And I had to contact you immediately to reminisce about my idiocy as far as not believing Putin's resolve to invade Ukraine. So what, what's your take on the course of events over the last 24
2: hours? Don't be hard on yourself. I don't think any of us wanted to see it happen. And we're all kind of going against our our own uh, predispositions and instincts, um, you know, to to accept that this was going to happen. So um, he he uh, I think he gave away the most in his speech. Um, when, it, when he, it was clear that this is personal for him. And if you go back and look at his previous statements over the last few years, it, it has been for some time, like we just, we weren't paying enough attention to him. So he's made, he, he's got our attention now. Uh, you know, it, in terms of understanding what's happening right now, it's clear. Only one thing is is clear is that he is trying to seize large parts of Ukraine beyond the Donbass region. So the kind of lowest risk, best case scenario that a lot of us had envisioned, uh, which you know it really just involved him seizing uh, parts of Donetsk and Luhansk uh, Oblast in the Southeast, he, he's gone well beyond that. Uh, he, it looks like, at least from initial indications, that he's trying to seize the capital, Kyiv, uh, to take control of the country. He's certainly going after Kharkiv, uh, just to the east. Um, he's landed, he reportedly has landed troops in Odessa, uh, which means he may be trying to build a land bridge between Crimea and Transnistria on the eastern side of Moldova. Um, whether or not that means he's going for the whole country, uh, I think that's still an open question. It, there are no indications he's pushed further west of, uh, of the river at this point.
1: So it look, kind of looks like his aim is to take over the government from at least, uh, right now,
2: right? Yeah, this is where it gets interesting. You know, you would have assumed that he would have done something a little bit more uh, quickly uh, and maybe uh, aggressively to try to uh, decapitate the government in the early hours of the attack. And maybe he did try uh, and didn't succeed, which would be really interesting. Um, Or he's holding off on that uh, possibility for later. and. Uh, you know, we, we, the, yeah, the worst may be yet to come. Um, but I, you know, I just want to caution and and a lot of your listeners know this and take it to heart and it's good to have a reminder. And for me to remind myself every once in a while, whenever you're observing combat from a distance, and even when you're up close, uh, a lot of what you're seeing and hearing is inaccurate. It's almost always incomplete. Uh, there are mixed messages. There's a lot of bias because the parties involved want to, things to be perceived a certain way. So those of us that are not inside the intelligence community right now and, and privy to the best available information know almost nothing. Uh, and so it would it would be really premature of any of us in the analytic community to, to make any bold statements about what's happening. So all of this is is offered up with a big grain of salt uh
1: one of the questions beyond this as well since it's i mean it's pretty obvious that he wants to take control over ukraine i guess the debate would be to what extent taking over the government or the entire uh, country by force um but the question that's going to come next is does he go beyond this does he attempt to take the swalky gap uh you know, and link back to Kaliningrad? Or, you know, where does he go? Does he go beyond Ukraine, do you think?
2: That possibility is always there. So you're asking, does he progress further west and actually move across the the, uh, collective NATO alliance border in the Baltic states? Uh, And there's a little, uh, you know, those that don't follow European geography closely, there's a little Russian enclave that's really not physically connected by Russian land um, going through the walkie Gap just north of Poland and Lithuania um, on the Baltic Sea. That is really kind of like a corregidor-like fortress that the Russians have. Um, and you know, the, there there's been a, an assumption since the, the first Ukraine operation in 2014, 2015, that Putin might try to Close that gap and open open a corridor uh, to connect Russian territory. That's possible. Um, I I think this is a big bite to take right now. Uh, I think if he is going to make a move against NATO physically, it's going to come down the road, and that this is really a test case for him. If he can be successful here with limited casualties, if he can sustain popular support for what he's doing, if his economy can weather the sanctions, um, and if he's able to hold on to the territory that he takes in Ukraine, which is a an enormous question mark, um, and it's obviously one that we've talked about here previously, then maybe a couple of years from now, he may think about that, um, but I think, you know, he's getting older too, um, well, he may not be around long enough for the moment to be ripe uh, for that to happen.
1: And I highly encourage everyone to check out the site and read your article on the Ukrainian will to fight, which you sort of summarize this kind of remains to be seen. We don't know to the extent that everything they I mean, it, it appears as though the Ukrainians have made it difficult. But in our previous conversations, we also talked about the Russian will to fight. And BBC just reported about an hour ago that there's a, a protest of close to a thousand people in Moscow protesting the war. Uh, What are your thoughts about what he's going to face domestically, which you alluded to just a minute ago as well?
2: Yeah, I was a little surprised at that report. Um, I don't know if the numbers are accurate or not. There clearly was a protest of some kind. Um, But, you know, that given the stakes and the, the intensity with which Putin has been selling this war, it's a high risk activity to go out in the middle of the street in Moscow and protest against his actions. Um, so those are pretty brave people, and it means that they really care about what they're saying, uh, or they appear to at least. Um, in, in in terms of the will to fight and the combat here, will to fight generally means the the uh, disposition and decision to fight, act, or persevere when needed, right? So this is a lot of people associated with morale or cohesion, but it's really the the it's a question, right? Are you gonna stay and do what needs to be done? Are you going to stay in the trenches as you're being shelled with heavy artillery? Are you going to fight back? Are you going to you know, go into combat knowing that you're probably going to die because you're fighting a, a much larger, and more capable force? Um, and on the Russian side is, do you have the will to move forward and attack and continue to take casualties, maybe having been surprised? that there's any Ukrainian resistance whatsoever um, at the tactical level. And at the strategic level, you know, Putin has to think about uh, how how much popular support he might be eroding back home if things don't go well, if these reports of Russian aircraft getting shot down and Russian casualties being incurred turn out to be accurate, um, if he's not able to make ra- rapid progress on the ground, if he can't take Kyiv, if he can't take Kharkov, Um, If his troops get bogged down in the east um, and things start to look bad for him, all eyes globally are on this invasion right now. And if it goes poorly, um, he's not just in trouble financially because of the sanctions, but he might be in trouble back home as well.
1: Another thing you brought up and we had talked about previously, and many analysts have talked about this over the weeks, is... At some point, they you know the overwhelming military might of Russia will overwhelm Ukraine. However, in the long term, regardless of what the current Ukrainian will to fight is, there will be a counterinsurgency on behalf of the Ukrainians. Can you speak to what the long-term impact will be on Russia and their ability to maintain control over Ukraine?
2: Yeah, but let me hit your first point and one of the, there was a comment on my article this morning on Real Clear defense and it was a it was an interesting comment the the uh commenter said why do all of these authors assume the ukrainians won't be able to fend off the russians basically um and that we just assume that they're going to lose and the russian ukrainians have an army of over 200,000 people they have reserves of of ostensibly 900,000 people um and that you know the russians might not really be able to succeed here. They may be defeated. Uh, I don't discount that possibility. I think it is possible that the Ukrainians could defend their country successfully or at least parts of it. Uh, I just think it's highly unlikely because the Russians have an overwhelming uh, superiority in capability, um, in military expertise and in, and most importantly, in air power um, and the ability to see targets across the battlefield. Uh, now, where their weakness lies, as I, as I argued in the previous article, uh, the Troop to Task article, is in occupation. And, you know, I the estimate that I had put forth was that it would take 83,000 uh, ground troops to secure an area running generally from Kharkiv, which is east of Kiev. So not even taking off, you know, taking a big bite and going going further west down to the, the upper river uh, and not going into Odessa, right? So not Taking out, taking out parts of the, the Black Sea in the West, um, Black Sea coast. And so that was 83,000 troops, which is, if you double it for rotations, that's a little bit less than half of the Russian ground force. Um, now, if you add Kiev into that, I'm doing the calculations now to figure out what that would cost uh, in terms of, of securing the country, but that it, it's an enormous uh, cost in terms of physical presence that the Russians are gonna to have to maintain, um, they're going to be badly exposed. You know, troops uh, fighting in an oc- or occupying a country are much more vulnerable to attack, much more vulnerable to degradation of, of will to fight uh, than troops fighting in a successful offensive combat operation. And, uh, you know, even a, a kind of bare bones insurgency on the part of the Ukrainians, if they're able to sustain one, could erode Russian will to fight over time, certainly will cause casualties uh, and may make their occupation untenable in the long run.
1: What's interesting you bring that up uh, because I think after Biden's speech, the BBC was talking to folks about a lot of the sanctions that are coming out now are targeting the oligarchs. That's something we hadn't talked about when we talked about Putin finally making this decision A lot of it had to do with his age and his wanting to reestablish, not the Soviet Union itself, but at least Russian control of those territories. And you had mentioned that he's got his inner circle that are pretty hawkish and probably helped instigate this behavior on his part. The question we didn't talk about, and I'd like to hear your thoughts is, Will sanctioning these oligarchs potentially have an impact? Will they come back to him and say, hey, we can't sustain this economic impact in the long term?
2: You know, we're stepping a little bit outside of my comfort zone here. But, so you know, with that understanding, um, I don't think so. I, I don't think that they have that kind of influence. They all live and thrive at, you know, at his will. Um, and they all have their fortunes because he allows them to have their fortunes. Uh, you know, let's let's not pretend that they actually have any influence or power beyond, you know, his, his uh, large ass. So, uh, you know, they have potentially—I don't know what the numbers are—but billions of dollars stashed in in the United Kingdom, in the UK banking system, in, in real estate, and in other countries um, that is vulnerable. Um, but I've seen plenty of reports saying that the Russians. Well, first of all, we we know that they've built up an enormous cash reserve. We know that they've been um, sanctions-proofing their economy uh, since uh, the middle of the last decade, and so they are they have been expecting this. They're prepared to deal with it. They may use cryptocurrency to get around a lot of the sanctions that we're trying to impose on them, um, which is a really interesting early lesson for us in cryptocurrency. If that, if that is true, um, but what this really the only the economic threat to Putin here is, is the currency reserve um, and the impact on the population. So, if prices skyrocket and incomes decline, and the Russian people believe that this is not in their best interests and, and uh, groundswell grows uh, along with casualties, that's a problem for him. And then the second problem is his cash reserves deplete, his options dwindle. Um, and obviously his fortunes will also ebb and flow with the price of oil. Uh, he'll benefit from a, probably benefit now from a boost in, in oil sales. And I'm sure he can make up for lost gas and oil sales by pushing more out to China if he needs to.
1: And and that's one of the problems in Europe is uh, their lack of unity on what to do sanctions wise. In fact, I think today they mentioned that Gerhard Schroeder, the former uh, premier in Germany it's actually on the board of the second largest energy producer in Russia Um, so what does the West Europe and the United States do beyond sanctions you think that might deter Putin not only from sustaining Ukraine but going further
2: well, my friend Mick Mulroy was just quoted in The Times, I believe today, um, arguing that the United States should support an insurgency against the Russians uh, in the post-invasion period. And uh, I agree with him. And I don't know if that decision has been made already, if, if uh, capabilities are already in place. Uh, but that, you know, there is open uh, source doctrine available on U.S. government websites that describes unconventional warfare capabilities and activities. Um, And applying those now would seem to be reasonable. Uh, And, you know, whether it's direct where we would send U.S. special operators behind enemy lines, I think that would that's a high risk. I'm not sure that we want to take that risk, but certainly helping the Ukrainians run their own unconventional warfare operation behind Russian lines uh, is something that we should do uh, aggressively uh, to help erode. Russian fighting capability and their world of fight.
1: The other question <clears throat> that I should have mentioned earlier actually and people haven't talked about a great deal because it hasn't impacted anyone other than Ukraine to this point but the cyber component will Russia my greatest fear has always been them attacking our financial system actually but um would you how do you see because if if this gets really difficult for Putin I mean I think There's nothing stopping him from doing whatever he thinks is necessary. I think at this point he's, he's crossed the Rubicon, of course. So what do you think, uh, how do you think the cyber aspect might play out?
2: We are vulnerable, uh, in a lot of ways that probably we haven't even imagined, uh, to cyber attack. And, um, you know, he has that card that he can play, um, his ability to hide it is limited. And I, I think he probably realizes that that once he attacks us, that we will be able to attribute a lot, at least a lot of those attacks. Um, you know, there, it goes beyond attacking our financial institutions. He could uh, open hydroelectric dams and flow water down into communities. He could um, do anything, you know, anything that's connected to the internet is vulnerable, uh, and including individuals. I mean, you can go after um, individuals that in the United States that have Spoken out against the Russian actions um, and take down, as you said, take down institutions as well. Uh, You know that's a serious concern, and we need to think about what his reaction is going to be. But you know this is where deterrence and will come into play at the strategic level. Are we going to allow ourselves to be cowed by those threats, by this threat of cyber retribution by the Russians? Are we going to let him? overthrow a European democracy that we have supported, we've been on the record supporting. This administration, the Trump administration was on the record supporting the, the Ukrainian uh, government uh, and the administration before that as well. So the last three administrations have said, we stand with the Ukrainians. Uh, and if we're gonna allow cyber, the threat of cyber attacks to um, have us go back on At least those informal pledges, uh, then we have to be worried about a lot more uh, nefarious activity in the future.
1: Getting back to Europe, one of the things that we had also, I think, jokingly I had told you this morning, the sort of the silver lining could be in all of this is the unification of a Western response to Russia. And to look inward, um, you know, we talked about previously. You know, Germany. Giving up all their nuclear power made them completely energy dependent on Russia. Everything that we do has secondary and tertiary consequences. Is the West going to wake up and unify in a meaningful way that would really pose a significant threat to Russia and authoritarian regimes in the long term, do you think?
2: Um, I doubt it. I doubt there will be any dramatic. Um... You know, move towards cohesion in reaction to this invasion. You know, I think we're we're all so easily distracted now. The next event that comes along in may, uh, and I think Putin's probably banking on this that you know we'll be distracted by the next event. Um, but you know, the hurdles that we've had to overcome to maintain NATO cohesion, put aside EU cohesion uh, uh, and cross Atlantic cohesion, uh, all of those hurdles still remain. Um, there are. Financial, legislative, uh, political, ethical, I mean all sort you across the board uh, issues that we we have to deal with. And frankly, a, a non-unified United States is in no position to serve as a kind of beacon or or uh, magnet to bring uh, the West together as it as it uh, did during the Cold War um, because we, we just we can't even bring ourselves together at this point.
1: One last thing, the, you know, the fallout of this could have repercussion in some of the other former Soviet republics and a topic that's not talked about a great deal is the fragility of the Balkans that still remains. Do you see this having any impact on that, uh, you know, the fragility of the Balkans at, at the moment?
2: Yeah, I don't know if it, what the overflow reaction or impact would be in the Balkans. I, I just don't know enough to to see the connections between them. But... I am concerned about, uh, the proximity to Romania. I mean, we, you know, the, you know, just over the, just down from Moldova is a NATO country. Um, uh, so we have Russian troops conducting amphibious operations, not too far from the border of a NATO country right now. Um, and it's a vulnerable NATO country. So, uh, that, that bothers me. Um, I'd be concerned, uh, as the closer the Russians get to the border of, existing NATO members, uh, how vulnerable those members come, become to uh, uh, Russian influence. Uh, so Romania, Bulgaria, uh, Poland, Hungary, certainly already under some influence. Uh, yeah, those are, you know, it's, it's further uh, towards the NATO heart that, that makes me worried.
1: So you... <clears throat> question some of the cohesion of NATO and whether or not Article five would hold if, say, Putin decides to go into the Baltics.
2: Yeah. And, and I don't stand alone in that doubt. I mean, they're, no, there First of all, a lot of Russian expert, experts, Russians who are experts on international security have expressed those doubts publicly. And uh, I recall one I can't quote off the top of my head saying that NATO will the fight is is broken. Um. NATO has to act as a as a uh, cohesive entity by getting all of the members to agree on things in the North Atlantic uh, Council, and it's very hard to do that. It's hard to get all of these disparate countries together uh, with populations that have varying interests in defending each other. Um, you know, there are po- there have been polls taken that show the Germans have almost no interest in defending the Baltic states. And, uh, you know, the French and the Germans were pulled uh, over defending Ukraine, which is not a NATO country, but there was almost no interest there. Um, and beyond that, uh, you know, the physical capabilities that these states bring to bear at this point is also very limited. Uh, and, you know, the the ability to put ground forces into the Baltics to defend them against a Russian ground force um, is is not what it was during the Cold War. Neither are the Russians. They, they don't have the 100 divisions that the Soviets had, but, um, you know, they, they certainly appear to have enough physical force to take over pretty large countries.
1: Well, thank you so much, Ben, for joining us today. Uh, we'll keep tabs on this situation and perhaps get back with you again uh, to see where this goes, because, of course, we're not even quite 24 hours into the current situation. Do you have any final thoughts before we part ways?
2: No, I'll just reiterate this to, you know, to anybody listening, just be patient. Don't jump to conclusions about what you're seeing in the news. Don't read too much into videos um, and uh, be a good consumer of information.
0: Thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news and coverage of the ongoing conflict in Ukraine for editor David Craig and everyone here at Real Clear Defense's Hotwash, I'm John Swords.